Well, welcome to episode three, everyone. How are you doing, Emily? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. So today I'm excited to talk about caricatures. And um, I've been thinking about kind of the essence of our podcast. And one way to look at it is to break through caricatures in education, right? Um, think about a what that is, is when you conjure up something in your head to to stand for a set of ideas. And I think it can be something that um, can be really tricky to navigate. And so I thought we could use this discussion today to talk about one kind of caricature uh, related to teaching methods, because you have some personal experience. And I realized from my own perspective, I've got this image in my head of what, for example, classical education means but I never went through classical education and really talked to people in detail about their experience in classical education. So I thought this would be a good opportunity for me to break down my own relationship to this caricature and use it as just an opportunity to figure out how to navigate this sort of question, like how to spot when you're doing it and then how to maybe, um, what, what kind of the things that you can take away from that experience. So you you have experience with classical education. So before, I, I really want to learn more about what your experience was like. And I thought I could just share what the caricature that I conjure in my head is so that we can find out if there's any basis of it in truth. Um, and maybe from your experiences and from experiences of people you've interacted with over your life, we can figure out how to navigate what's true, what's not true, and and how to deal with that. So what comes to my mind when I think of classical education, or maybe like a Catholic education, is like the strict nun who maybe figuratively or literally is going to beat knowledge into you. So <laughs> yeah. it's kind of dogmatic. Um, they're going to make you learn. And maybe there's even like a ruler involved that they're going to slap your hand when you you make a mistake or don't don't um, uh, know, know the answer or are misbehaving and they're going to force this knowledge into you. And that's kind of what conjures to my mind. And, you know, I've heard a lot of interviews with progressive types who um, their desire not to have education be like that caricature mm -hmm. drives them towards progressive ideals. So with that kind of context in mind, um, I'm really curious to learn about your own ex doesn't have to be just your experience with classical, but what um, was your experience anything like that? And what actually happens in a classical classroom? <laughs> okay, this is a great question. I, I st so to start out with, I've had quite a few different variations on a classical education. So I went to, I would say six or seven different schools between first grade and 12th grade. And they were a variety of different things. One of them was a homeschool hybrid. I was also homeschooled. I was um, I went to Van Dam Academy, which is sort of an alternative type school. And then from sixth to twelfth grade, I was at a Catholic classical school. So I'll focus on that one for now because I think it's going to speak most directly to some of the caricatures. Because I did have a very strict nun teacher who also happened to be my favorite teacher by the end <laughs> of my time at the school. Okay. Um, there were uh, there was a lot about that school that was very traditional. We wore uniforms. Um, there was a 
very big emphasis on something that uh, my headmaster used to say was external order produces internal order. So we were in a small campus. There was a lot of kind of, we all pulled together to keep it clean and to take care of it. And that involved a certain amount of discipline. For example, I was the bell ringer my senior year of high school, which meant that I like rang the bells on the hours on mass days to keep everything organized. And there was a certain amount of academic strictness, especially in, yeah, I took theology and Latin from this one very traditional nun who almost every day there was a quiz. There was a very regimented system. We were moving through a very regimented system. I remember one time I, (laughs) this is actually a very funny story. So there was a ninth and 10th grade had classes together. There was a 10th grade boy and uh, he was teasing me because I'd forgotten my Latin grammar book. And the teacher actually made me stand the whole class because I had forgotten my grammar book. Halfway through the class, he turns to me and goes, I have an extra one and hands it to me. And it was my grammar book. He didn't realize that, to be fair. But it was, I never let him live it down. And, uh, but yeah, I think a lot of schools probably nowadays, especially would not make you stand if you forgot something that you needed for class. That's kind of, it's not corporal punishment exactly, but it's, uh, it's not something that probably people would be really happy about today. So there were some, do you want me to restrict just to what conforms to the, to the caricature for now or? No, I mean, I think the, the main curiosity I have is. Is there any, well, maybe we start with, is there any basis for the caricature? So it sounds like, okay, mm-hmm. the caricature is not completely baseless in that, like, yeah, there's some strictness that goes on. Um, yes. But I also want to like use your personal experience and tell a more, like a, a fuller story, right? Because mm-hmm. we can, I think one of the challenge with um, characterizing things can be to, you know, lose the trees in the forest. So to mm-hmm. kind of conclude, oh, this is strict and forceful and bad, mm-hmm. and maybe um, maybe lose what your relationship to that experience is and how mm-hmm. you look back on it and how it affected your ability to learn. So mm-hmm. I don't want to narrow it down to just like validating the caricature. I want to also, yeah. I want to bro- like try and try and learn more about what it was actually like being in that environment, how it affected your ability to learn, um, what you thought was good or bad about it. Yeah. So I think I'll start with by explaining why this very strict teacher became my favorite teacher. And I think the reason for that was that I found that she really cared about what she was talking about. Everyone at that school did. But I came to realize that the intensity of the testing really just had to do with what she saw as the importance of the subject. So she was teaching theology and Latin. And later I learned that she had taught herself Latin to teach this class. So she was learning it alongside us and she was keeping us up to a very high standard that I know she was also keeping herself to. And I think that in the long run, as a student, you really come to respect that. And you come to respect the fact that if you bring everything you have to this class, then the class will respond and the teacher will respond and see what you're capable of doing. 
So I had a couple of instances at that school, both with that teacher and with other people, where I got really good feedback on my writing. And I knew, first of all, that they didn't give everyone good feedback on their writing. And secondly, that they didn't even always give me good feedback on my writing. So when that came from people, I still recall there were two really important instances. One was a theology class and one was an English class where these teachers really commended me specifically. And I think that actually sowed the seed in my mind of, oh, I'm capable of writing. This is a special talent that I have. This is a gift that I have. And I felt very encouraged by that in a way that I wouldn't if the entire background had not been strict and had not been intense, if they had just been blowing sunshine for everyone. And I certainly had my fair share of like crying about quizzes and stuff because I was kind of an intense child. (laughs) Um, But that seeing that payoff, I think was really valuable. And then I also recall just the feeling that it gave me. And I had this experience of Van Damme too. So we can talk more about that later of actually needing to use my entire mind for a class, which wasn't frankly, because I'm a very verbal person, it wasn't always that challenging for me. School was not. And when I would have a theology test, I would read over my notes and read over my notes and read over my notes. I would memorize definitions that I still have memorized because I knew that this was going to hold me to that really high standard. And I think as a child, people don't realize how much as a child, you've got to read for whether someone cares about something and you have a read very quickly for whether you can respect an adult. And though these teachers were challenging in certain contexts and this environment was very rigorous, I think I very quickly learned that I could respect these people. So I think that's a major, a major element of that, uh, of that, that sort of the flip side of the caricature. Right. And what will be interesting to explore maybe a little later on is what's an essential aspect of the caricature or unique maybe to classical education versus how do we extract just general principles that are good in education and not package Mm -hmm. them together with, with the caricature. Um, Mm -hmm. So before we get on to that though, because I want to, I do want to dive into the idea of packaging. Are there elements that for you or for other people you knew you know, how did, how did, how did people respond to the strictness? Like, I, I think the the reason I'll ask this is I think the thing we want to avoid with this sort of caricature is like, it puts a lot of people off education or off a certain kind mm-hmm. of education. So mm-hmm. for somebody maybe like me, that's a bit more stubborn, I can imagine myself rebelling against a more strict mm-hmm. environment and not wanting to learn, which is not a desirable outcome, right? In our, our our first episode, we spoke about the value of edu- or the purpose of education and it being really important and, and it equipping uh, students and humans with the ability to think and go out into the world as confident thinkers. Mm-hmm. So if there's an impediment to that, right, whether that has nothing to do with the subject matter, but has to do with the methodology, then we should examine that more. So in your experience, like, how would you classify the kind of teaching method and mm-hmm. how do people react in your experience? Was it, you know, generally positive? Was it mixed? Was it negative? Like, how do you, how do you see that? That's a really good question. I don't know that I can really answer for everyone. So I was in a very tight knit class of 14 kids. 
for pretty much sixth to 12th grade. And I do recall people having sort of varying responses to the strictness. A lot of people were coming from homeschooling. I speak to specifically the, um, the rebellious side. There was a boy in sixth grade who climbed out the window because <laughs> he got mad at the teacher. <laughs> and uh, I recall that being a big thing. I think he was suspended a couple of times. He graduated with my class, did really well, became an EMT. Like, uh, So I think there was a certain amount that I don't know that we were thinking that abstractly about what we were doing. And I honestly lost contact with a lot of those people after high school. But that being said, I do think there was, ironically almost, but I, I wonder whether it is ironic, an independence of thought that my class developed that probably had to do with responding to this rigorous level of education. I've seen people go on to do all sorts of different things. I've seen them, um, I've seen people who, you know, just things that you wouldn't have expected out of different groups of people. And of course, then people do do what you expect. The school was very much a feeder school for a local uh, college, and no one in my class went to that college. Not that it wasn't a good college, but that I thought was interesting because I do think that the school itself, even though it was a feeder school, was not prone to just forming us in an ideology. It hopefully helped us to think outside the box a little bit and enable people to make their own decisions. That being said, it was a very small sample size. So I don't really know how much I can attribute specifically to that as far as how people turned out and what they ended up doing. I do think for some people it wasn't, they did not respond to the rigorous side of it the way that I did. I think there were a lot of people who did. I think there were people who were challenged, uh, particularly, frankly, who came from homeschooling. I saw a lot of people come from homeschooling and really, really thrive, I think, because they were, uh, they were pushed a lot. And I think that they responded well to that, but there were people who didn't do so well with it. So I don't really so know if that wanna, answers the question. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's getting down there, but when, I want to ask about something because you're using the word rigor in a certain yeah. way. And I want to see if, if it means what I think it means. Cause I see rigor as something separate from strictness. Mm. Um, like to me, rigor is, um, being detail oriented. So focusing on the details, focusing on practice, focusing on, um, uh, uh, obtaining the skill, but, and there's an element, maybe you could say of strictness, but there, there are different ways you can instill rigor, right? So mm -hmm. it could be more dogmatic, which is, I think more in line with the caricature of like, you have to learn this, whether you like it or not. And I think that's the kind of thing I'm I'm curious how how much of a basis there is of that idea versus mm -hmm. you can also have rigor where you focus on motivating the child, um, becoming a model for them. And, you know, I can I can think back, for example, to my guitar teacher when I was in high school, like he would um, he would play a song. I remember the day he played Stairway for Heaven to me, like he played it for me. And I was like. Oh, I want to learn that. And he's like, okay, but first you have to learn, wish you were here because there's a technique you're going to learn. And, and I was like, okay, I'm in. He's like, here are the, the scales you're going to practice. Here's the, the exercises you're going to do. And I was like, in, I'm going to do that. And I can see that. Nice. Like, I would call that rigor in the sense of like, 
I went home and I practiced for hours and then I came back the next week and I'm like, okay, am I ready for stairway to heaven? <laughs> and, and um, <laughs> it wasn't, I think there's a different, uh, th that is different than the other thing I painted the picture of, which is like, you know, my, my friend, uh, my good friend who just a stick in the music example, she had what you might call like the quintessential piano childhood experience where her parents put her into, into piano lessons when she was like three. And she's like, a yeah. musical genius in a lot of ways. Like she's got perfect pitch and mm -hmm. stuff and she's a brilliant piano player, but she has like, she hates the memories of how she learned piano. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I think this is actually a great idea to tease out what I mean, because she had the really strict teacher who would smack her knuckles when she made a mistake in the scales and, you know, would it was forced on her. And mm -hmm. so despite the fact that she does now love piano still and loves playing, and is talented. And, and also there are certainly things that that teacher instilled in her that have made her the piano player. She is, she would never teach that way. She has nothing but like terrible memories of it. And, and um, you know, it's, it's created this aversion in her to that style. Um, so, so I think in those two examples of my experience and her experience, there's examples of rigor. I think we both practice rigorously, um, but there's two very different styles in how it was it was imparted. And I'm wondering, you know, I have the caricature that the classical education is more like my friend's experience than my experience with, with musical instruments. What can you comment on your experience? Was it closer to one of those? Yeah, so there's a lot of interesting stuff there. I think I'm going to lead in with, I think there's a difference. There's another distinction to be made, which is, so if we're going to define, there's, there's basically like two different things you're teasing out here. One is like, you're being forced to learn something that you wouldn't necessarily have chosen to learn on your own. And then there's, you're being forced to learn something well that you do want to learn anyway. And then I think there's a third thing here, which has to do with the discipline that is being used in that context, if that makes sense. Because I do think there's, so I, I actually also played competitive piano and I saw that as well. So I had the structure that I ended up with was my parents who said, you can play piano if you want to. We don't really care whether you do super well. We don't have strong expectations on that, but we see it as something that you want to do. So if you want to do it, you can pursue it. And then I had a very strict teacher who was not very fun to work with. And for me, that ended up being a really good combination because I did want to learn it. My parents weren't forcing me. I was choosing to learn something. And in the process, it was a little bit painful, but I learned it better, frankly, than I would have otherwise. And I remember even at the time knowing that, I was like, if I didn't have this competitive structure and this kind of mean teacher, I just wouldn't work as hard as I do. So that's one thing. On the other side, I actually think that my experience of a classical education was more like your friend's experience of the piano, as far as if, if that's how we're going to define rigorous. No one really cared whether we wanted to learn the things we were being taught or not. We were basically just being told, you don't know what's important. This is what you're learning because it's important. You'll know later that it's important. 
but we're not really going to focus a whole lot on convincing you uh, to be self-motivated. We're just going to push you with certain disciplinary tactics. And some of those I liked, some of them I didn't. I would not, never make a child stand, for example. Sure. Um, but uh, I do think that as you grow up and you become, especially like late high school, you start seeing why you learned all of these things. Like I was memorizing a lot of like dogmatic definitions, for example. And then in high school, you get into ethical quandaries and you get into the meaning behind the sacraments and all of that. This is just using theology as an example. And you see why you learned all of that. But my teachers really didn't spend a lot of time in sixth and seventh grade explaining to me, trying to motivate me from, from the inside. There was a lot of external motivation. And I'm not sure that's a bad thing, I guess is all I'm saying. Uh, it could be a bad thing, but I'm not, I'm not fully convinced from my experience that it's a bad thing because I don't think I knew when I was 10 or 12 what was important. That being said, I happen to have grown up to agree with those people on what was important. And I think if I had been strictly inculcated in something that I grew up not to agree with, I would probably feel very differently. Yeah. And I think what's really interesting, I always forget that you went to Van Damme Academy for a few years. And so <laughs> yeah. one thing Maybe I should I mention is, <laughs> yeah, I, I have a close relationship with Van Damme Academy. Lisa Van Damme, the founder is, I would call my like educational mentor. Uh, like I learned most of my stuff from her. Um, I work with her on a number of projects and it just was coincidentally, Emily and I did not get introduced to each other through Van Damme Academy. It was just like serendipitous that she went to Van Damme. How many, how many years did you go there? Just one. One year, okay. But it, I have very vivid memories of it. <laughs> yeah, so it's just incredible that that happened. So so the the reason I want to focus on that, because they have an interesting style. Like They definitely believe mm -hmm. in academic rigor. But one where the place that maybe they, I don't want to say deviate. Um, because Lisa sometimes does almost tongue in cheek say you have to force the kids sometimes. Mm -hmm. Right. And um, I think it's a good opportunity to just zoom in a little bit on how we can um, overemphasize certain concepts. So I think the idea of force is a good example. Like, what does it really mean to force a child? Because ultimately, you can't really force a mind. We talked about that a little bit last time. Like, mm -hmm. If the if the child doesn't want to learn and wants to be rebellious against it, they're not going to. They're just going to close their mind and you know have a chip on their shoulder and and reject it. So you force does not work. I think that's an important point. But like there is probably a spectrum. And I'll, I'll share a story that always stuck with me on like why just saying force is bad in this context is not nuanced enough. So. I can't remember how old I was um, sometime in elementary school, though. My mom came home and she forced me to read Harry Potter. I wasn't reading at the time. <laughs> uh, she, she came home and she said, you have to read this book. And I didn't want to. And um, I, she said, you, ha you have to. No, she didn't like chain me to a wall or anything. She didn't use like physical <laughs> force or anything. She just like, I don't know, kids have weird relationships with their parents where parents can force them to do something, even though there's no like mm -hmm. actual way. But I would call that like, she forced me, quote unquote. And so I went up to my room and I started skipping pages because I was like, maybe I'll just pretend to read it. And then I realized, well, if I don't, if I just get to the end tonight, she's not going to believe me. And so <laughs> I, I was like, maybe I'll just read a little bit of it. And within a few pages, I was hooked. 
And like yeah. that launched yeah. my, my, you know, reading, I, I didn't read before that point. And then I got obsessed with this book and I loved it. Funnily enough, and spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't read Harry Potter, <laughs> I skipped chapter one where you find out that there are wizards. And so <laughs> it came as like a big surprise to me, like a few chapters later. <laughs> so I had this like weird experience with Harry Potter where like, if you remember the books, if you know the books, you know that like, if you don't read chapter one, you don't find about the whole wizard. Like I didn't know what it was about for the first few chapters. <laughs> so it was this really- I'm surprised I very... you were still gripped. Yeah, I had an interesting experience with Harry Potter. But anyways, um, the main point I want to make is I don't look back on that experience, right? As like, oh man, my mom was evil because she forced me to read this book. I look mm -hmm. back on it similar to what you were saying with this gratitude of like, man, where would I be if I didn't read? <laughs> if mm -hmm. I didn't find a love of reading, um, how much would I have been robbed from in my childhood? And so the approach that they take at Van Damme Academy that I really love and is nuanced is like, it's a spectrum. So ultimately, I think they acknowledge at the school that you can't force the mind. You do have to get the kids to buy it. If they just decide to, mm -hmm. they're going to rebel, then you can't reach them. So you, there has mm -hmm. to be an effort made. But I think where they differ from maybe what you might call the progressive movement is I think they realize there's a number of different ways you can get that buy-in. Yes. And it it doesn't have to be the extreme of what you might call child-centered or ch student-led or student choice, where mm -hmm. like you've already touched on some of them. One great way to get a, a student to buy-in is being their mentor. And that kind of echoes, mm -hmm. echoes my experience with guitar is my teacher showed me how to play this song that I really wanted to play and like embodied um, what I wanted to be like as a guitar teacher. Lisa often talks about embodying, Lisa Van Damme talks about embodying the discipline. Like if you're a mm -hmm. history teacher or a literature teacher and you embody a love of that subject and enthusiasm, a mastery of it um, can maybe demonstrate how it's impacted your life. You don't necessarily even need to convince a student why they should learn it. They're just going to want to follow you. And that's not a yes. bad thing. Um, they're going to yes. want to emulate your experience. Um, that doesn't impact their independence. And we'll do a, another conversation maybe on like what independence actually is. But there are all these tools you have as an instructor to motivate the child to want to learn and buy into it so that you can get to the rigorous part, right? And I think, you know, mm -hmm. your example was great with piano too and mine with guitar. Like once you get the buy-in, like I want to achieve this skill, then you can accept and follow the instructions of somebody that wants you to be disciplined and rigorous in how you apply yourself to that. Um, and, and so I think the way to look at it, if we're zooming back out in terms of caricatures is... Um, to focus on what your goal is and not to to um, take too much of a dogmatic view of the methods you can employ to achieve that goal. Um, yeah. Like in the yeah, in the case of my mom forcing me to to read, it didn't have a devastating, lasting impact on my psychology. Like, right? You know, I didn't become a dependent person who was unable to think it unlocks something really important for me at the time I refused to read. So she had to go to an extreme measure 
wasn't that extreme, but like, mm-hmm. if we want to talk mm-hmm. about the spectrum, she had to go to an extreme measure. She couldn't coax me or reward me into reading. I wasn't into it. I would rather have done other things. Mm-hmm. And so that's why Lisa says sometimes, sometimes you force them in that way. But yeah. it doesn't mean that is your only tool or your first tool necessarily. So yeah, I don't know if if that resonates and if that maybe colors some of your experience in a different way. Yeah. And I'll add in actually a couple of examples from Van Dam that were also true of my other school as well, which is, so my parents were warned when I went to Van Dam. they said, she's going to come back home and she's going to be very exhausted. We don't do homework because she's going to work all day. And I remember that feeling. I remember the feeling of finally using my mind to its full capacity. And I think there is like, there's sort of three elements, three ethos elements there. One is, like you said, there's the teacher modeling it for you. I, I remember teachers who loved their subject. I remember this one teacher who, whenever she taught, would write out a full outline on the board with Roman numerals. I still schematize my outlines in the way that she did because she showed us how different sub thoughts can relate to a main thought every single day. She wrote the whole thing on the board and you eventually come to love it because you're in this environment. And then there's also the element of the other students. So another thing I remember very vividly, and I think we should throw this in as well, is just the element of competition. I honestly don't even remember if there were prizes, but there was very, very, very stark competition for geography because <laughs> at Van Dam, you're, you're free handing diagrams, freehanding maps of like, first of all, first you're filling in the maps and then eventually you're freehanding maps of Europe. And the person who does the best, I think, I don't even think they got a prize. I think it just went up on the wall. Sure. And having this feeling that everyone is doing this thing, there were math drills as well. So all of those things that on the surface, you know, drilling math, writing maps, things that would have sounded like strict on some level, you know, you picture it doesn't sound, you know, sweet and fun to have all of the kids on a timer scribbling down their math. And then when the time's up, doesn't matter if they're not done, it's over. But that lends to a sort of competitive element in the classroom that I remember very vividly being very motivating for me and for everyone else as well, in a way that I've always been a school person, but I think it even motivated people who are not school people, quote unquote, because they were able to see, okay, I can climb the ranks in this competition. Maybe I'm not as good at math, but I could be the best person at geography, that kind of thing. Yeah. And I think this touches upon what I would call tip number one that I have for (laughs) people in terms of how to avoid the mistakes and pitfalls of caricatures. And one big takeaway is talk to people who have had experiences in the kind of caricature you have, right? So what I'm gaining Mm -hmm. from actually hearing about your experiences in school, um, whether it's classical or at Van Damme Academy, is that like certain things we characterize in a certain way as negative actually aren't bad and you don't have bad Mm -hmm. memories of it Um, for Mm -hmm. for everyone, at least. Maybe, maybe, you know, I'm sure it's not in a vacuum that somebody has created this negative view of the strict nun idea. There's, there's some downsides Mm -hmm. to that for sure. But the danger is when you blanket it and then don't actually talk to people or do a bit of research on the actual um, experiences that people have with that thing. 
and you become too detached from it. So what I'm hearing from you is like the actual experience of going through it in the moment, there were some unpleasantness, maybe that's fine. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you talked about, um, sometimes when the quiz didn't go your way, right. There were yeah. moments of distress. I, I don't think any of us expects our childhood to be like, or, or would want them to be unblemished from adversity. Um, yes. but the overall, you know, it hasn't scarred you in life. And in fact, you look back on it, just like my experience with my, um, my mom and, and reading Harry Potter, I look back on it very fondly and like, yes. yeah, when you look back, perfect. it's not a negative, a negative thing that you recall. It's kind of funny to remember. Yeah. And then the next thing I'm, I, I really want to ask you a little bit about too, that you started alluding to is like, when, I mean, you're in a unique position because many people, I think I would count myself, like I went to two schools, right? So I went to an elementary school and a high school. And so I only got to see two kinds of things versus you've been in a fortunate position where you've kind of got the sample <laughs> a few different styles. And yes. so that's one of the other real dangers of caricatures is you package a lot of things together. So like an example I'll give is if anyone listens to uh, the podcast um, Sold the Story, which I know I've got you hooked on recently. Yes. <laughs> uh, I don't know if you're at this part yet, but in that podcast, that podcast is about the reading wars. And in that podcast, they get into a lot of interviews with teachers who, you know, threw out phonics for a while. Phonics as a way of teaching reading instruction or of teaching reading. And one of the things they cite is that like phonics looked like the kind of education they hated as a kid. So mm -hmm. it, it kind of felt like that strict sort of um, dogmatic style of education. And so they threw it out. They didn't want to teach anything like that, despite the merits of phonics. And they were much more attracted to an alternate method in balanced literacy or whole language that looked more like what they thought education should be like. And so one of the dangers of, of, caricatures is you, you end up packaging things together that seem similar to your own experiences without judging them on their merits. So what, why I bring this up is, are there elements that you saw common across all of the experiences you had that were positive that maybe are traditionally thought of as part of this classical caricature I'm, I'm painting, but that in fact you saw were great. You saw as something that worked and actually worked in different environments that had different teaching methods or styles. Yeah, that's a really interesting question because what was coming to mind as I thought back over all of my different experiences was really a through line of, because, because when I think about okay, people talk about this caricature. And I was thinking, okay, when have I had people talk to me about this? Like, oh, I knew this really mean nun one time. It's usually, to be honest, a character thing. Like, usually when I hear these horror stories, the issue is that this one teacher was really unkind. This one mm. teacher was really unjust. And when I look back on that, I remember vividly, I could call them out by name. I'm not going to. Sure, but yeah. every teacher who was profoundly unfair. I remember vividly as a child. I remember one time in high school, because I was very much a goody-two-juice child, you know, and, and most, of my, uh, most of my high school class was not that. 
And there was one teacher who was really prone to punishing the whole class or just could not get his classroom under control. And I remember one time, all of a sudden I became the target of the rage and he was like laying into me or punishing me for something. And my entire class who did not, I think like me all that much, were like, she wasn't doing anything, you know, like everyone. And I remember that very vividly because I think people underestimate how much children know what is just and what is unjust. And mm. I think as I look back, I don't really see, uh, of course, there are through lines of certain instructional methods. And I went to school earlier than now. So there were certain things that were were more rigorous that were common to homeschool hybrid, a public school, all of these different schools. Um, but the through line, I think, is really the teachers with good character were the teachers who I was able to really learn from. And a good character also involves an awareness of what's working and what's not working for your students. So for example, mm. in that podcast, there were a lot of teachers who listened to the podcast and I, I got all the way to the bonus episodes uh, okay. who listened to the podcast and then were profoundly upset. And right. it was really a big takeaway for me because it was like, you know what, actually, mostly teachers are really good people. Usually if yeah. they want to teach it's because they're really good people. There are a few people who get into teaching because they have some sort of authority complex and the kids can smell those from a mile away. But mostly when those teachers realized what they were teaching wasn't actually working, they were deeply, deeply apologetic to the, to the students, to the parents. They realized they were wrong. They acknowledged their, their mistakes. And so in a way, and this might be another takeaway for maybe people who are hiring teachers and things like that. I don't know how much it has to do with whether someone off the bat ascribes to any particular educational philosophy as much as it has to do with whether they themselves have the character to see what is what is fair and what is unfair and to see the student as an actual person that is that deserves respect and, because i think it comes out of now i'm sort of rambling but i think that desire not to impress something upon the student often comes out of a desire to do the right thing that that a lot of teachers share but if they attend to it and see what actually works i think they're going to move in the right direction and i think that's such an important point and gets to the theme of our whole podcast because i think to your point what makes somebody good often is not that they're part of a particular camp mm -hmm. right a particular camp it doesn't often have a monopoly on good instruction or good politics or whatever the domain is you're looking at and what's much more valuable is to look at like, what are the essentials that actually lead to success? And so I think we've identified a couple interesting takeaways. One is for teaching. I, I think you can kind of bucket a lot of education into two big categories, which is like the method of teaching, like how you, how you impart the information and how you motivate the child. So that's your methodology plus like the content and the substance that you're actually going to try and deliver. Mm -hmm. And a, a common thread you've you've been talking about in all your experiences is like the character of their teacher, their their um, how admirable they are, how um, mm -hmm. how how they conduct themselves, how they model for you the kind of person that you as a child do look up to. It, and this is mm -hmm. not, I don't think, conscious. Like I think we've all mm -hmm. had mentors in our lives who we look at like, man, I want to be like that person. <laughs> um, what are they doing in life that I want to follow? That's clearly across all spectrums going to be, um, 
you know, a defining character and characteristic. And you hear that in that podcast, Soul the Story, when you listen to these people who did adopt some really objectively poor methodologies for teaching reading, um, it's, they, they still, you can call them like, um, admirable people in a lot of way for how they conducted themselves and how they, what, what they aspired to be and what they mm -hmm. wanted to do. And then the other bucket, it's, um, you know, not again, packaging in particular, um, pieces of content like phonics, um, or grammar or literature, just because maybe it's associated with a style that you find, uh, not to be, um, not, not to work. And, I think that's kind of tip number two I would have in terms of how to how to navigate these caricatures is to avoid packaging things together, avoid, you know, oversimplifying by just saying, you know, I had this one experience to your point. Uh, sorry, I had this one experience and therefore I'm going to write off this entire thing and anything that looks like it and much more instead focus on like what we're like was that experience indicative of a particular style or of indicative of all of these things or just a person? Maybe I just had a bad experience with a particular teacher and um, that regardless of what kind of um, educational philosophy that teacher subscribed to, they're going to be a bad teacher, right? If they, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If they have that authority complex, it's probably going to end up, I'm not going to enjoy it no matter if they're progressive or classical or any term you want to, ascribe to them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. One other idea I want to throw out at you that I was thinking about is that caricatures and romanticizing are two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. So um, caricatures are often when you emphasize negative qualities. So when you think about the strict nun example, those are not admirable traits, right? I'm not painting a nice picture of, I feel, yeah. I feel bad for this nun now who I've created <laughs> in my head, but those are not admirable qualities. And when you characterize something like that, you package in good things into that, that you dismiss, right? So you're mm -hmm. bundling and things like that. But I realized romanticizing is not much better. It's just a different form of that. And when you, th there's a, a danger in, in romanticizing and caricaturing, in both cases, when you romanticize, you're elevating something you think is admirable and then packaging a bunch of stuff that's probably bad into it, right? You're, you're getting so caught up in the vision of what could be, the promise of what could be that you maybe overlook some negatives. And I think Soul the Story and the Reading Wars is a great example, right? A lot of those teachers they interview were so caught up in the vision of what balanced literacy and whole language had to offer. Right. It was this other style of teaching that was much more in their romanticized ideal of what teaching could be that they forgot to check if it actually worked and if, if kids actually learned to read. And so <laughs> I think both have these big pitfalls. I'm curious if you if you like that um, ex now or not example or analogy, but do you, do you think that follows? Do you think that those are similar um, or are they just different concepts like? Is the pitfall I'm trying to describe the same in both romanticizing and characterizing things? Yeah, no, I think you're definitely right. And just to sketch some broad strokes for the audience if they haven't if they haven't listened to the podcast, sold a story. Basically, the idea is that a methodology of teaching and learning called whole language 
took over a lot of uh, major school systems. And it was basically based on this ethos that you're going to give kids a beautiful environment where they can read and just give them the feeling that it's good to be a reader and they're going to feel like they're readers, they're avid readers, but you're never going to actually teach them to read. And the idea was that they'd kind of pick it up and they don't. So they, they kind of put the put the cart before the horse there. They thought they'd build the avid reader lifestyle and the reading would come. It just turns out that scientifically that's not how it works. But you can see why all of these very well-meaning teachers wanted that to be true because it sounds very lovely. You know, like, oh, it'll be very beautiful. Everyone will love to read. It will be a very positive environment. It turns out from the teachers that I've seen who have good character, they know that children are not perfect little angels. And that if you leave children to do whatever they want to do, they will climb out the window, at least some of them. You know, like that the, when we were left on our own to our own devices, we didn't naturally learn moral theology. We just didn't because that's not what children do. So I completely agree. I think that if you romanticize the experience of learning or children to too dramatic of a degree, you're going to lose sight of what's actually happening and your children aren't really going to learn. Whereas, actually, on the flip side, I had many very beautiful and idyllic experiences at both Van Dam and my classical school. I remember Van Dam, the end of the year, uh, my teacher, the one who did all of the outlines, she gave me a copy of Anna Green Gables. Those to this day are my favorite series, pretty much of all time, just to read the Anna Green Gables books. I read them over and over and over. And I remember it at uh, my classical school. We had just these beautiful days where we would, it was called, what was it called? It was called Classical Day, actually. And we would each be like a different city state from classical times. And we built trebuchets and we built chariots and we painted things. And it was super beautiful. And there were people singing and there were competitions. And, you know, but all of that is coming within a structure that in itself isn't romanticized. And then you can build what's beautiful on top of that structure. Mm -hmm. So I think that leads me to tip number three, then, which is have a clear goal in mind, right? So mm -hmm. for combating romanticism and and caricatures and navigating them with some nuances, have a good solid foundation of what your objective is, right? And we've we've mm -hmm. kind of laid that out in our first episode of ultimately our goal is not to align ourselves with any particular creed, but to focus on what allows us to equip students with the ability to be confident thinkers, right? To go out in the world. And, and you can hear more about that in episode one. But when you have that goal in mind, I think it allows you to, to examine particular ideas um, more effectively, right? And, and I think hopefully realize that often we don't have to put things at odds with each other, right? I think one of the other dangers of romanticizing and creating caricatures is it almost forces you to make unnecessary choices. Like either mm -hmm. you have this idyllic experience or you have academic rigor. Well, mm -hmm. maybe you can have both. To your point, I think you said in your example, this day had a lot of structure to it and that structure allowed for certain really amazing experiences. You know, mm -hmm. a great, I think, example is imagine trying to have that experience you had with Anna Green Gables, but you don't know how to read. You're just never going to get that. <laughs> yeah. right? She could have given it to me because she wanted me to have an ethos of reading, but she could have yeah. just never taught me to read. 
Exactly. And I'll, I'll give another example. I wrote um, a blog post uh, a couple of weeks ago that we'll post a link of in the description. Just I was reflecting on grammar and my lack of instruction in grammar as a kid and whether I had always associated grammar with like rigorous study and maybe that more strict vision as like maybe it's not something that should be I idealized and maybe it's um, at odds with my independence. But um, I was reflecting on a, an instructor I had recently was talking about the value of grammar helping with accuracy of mind and accuracy of language. Like as you learn kind of the structure of grammar more, it's like creating a language scaffold in your mind that allows you to be more expressive because you can, you actually know how language works and you can make better choices. And the image that came to mind of the opposite of that is like a kid throwing a tantrum where their only way to express themselves is by crying. And if you ask them what's wrong, that usually makes it worse because they can't express themselves. And so they double down on, on mm -hmm. the tantrum. And I think what it shows is like equipping the mind with tools like grammar or being able to read does unlock a lot of these great experiences. But if you overly romanticize or become too dogmatic with your caricatures or how you're romanticizing things, you can miss out on that because you you might think that, oh, the way to read is X by like putting them in and creating an environment of reading. Or the only mm -hmm. way for a student to learn is if they choose every aspect of it. Mm -hmm. And then you get fo too focused on those conclusions and not enough about like what actually is effective and works. And to me, that's the real danger I, I'm hoping people are on the lookout for. Yeah, that's interesting because I do think there's, yeah, you want to keep the end in mind and you also shouldn't try to skip to the end. You know, mm. you shouldn't just try to immediately have the idyllic classroom of your dreams or skip the reading, skip the teaching people to read and just read with them. So I think there's something interesting to be unpacked there as far as like, okay, you got to have your end in mind. And then you have to ask really concrete questions about what works to get to the end that you want. Like you want your students to work as a team, for example, how do you get there? They're not going to come in working as a team. How are you going to cause them to see themselves as a team? That's a really good point. And another way to frame it is like, you can't reverse the cause and effect, right? If you've got some goal in mind, yeah. You don't just make it look like that goal. And, and this is actually yeah. like a really um, big trend in education right now where you see people that want to make a school look like the kind of adult context that the kid is going to hopefully grow up and succeed in. So, you know, a really hilarious example I saw not too long ago is um, one school which had identified like entrepreneurship as their buzzword, right? entrepreneurship's in vogue right now. Like having a startup is like considered admirable and like, yeah, just like a good career to have. And there is a sort of startup culture as well. And so what this school did is they wanted to foster that environment to allow students to become entrepreneurs. And um, so what they did was they, you know, made their classroom kind of look like a WeWork. So their their classroom, <laughs> like it had like comfy places for the kids to sit and work and like, 
the the most hilarious thing was in one of their promo videos one of the kids was like holding a starbucks cup and like having like a powwow <laughs> with a group like he was holding like a venti something i hope it wasn't coffee he was like a 12 year old hilarious but like i think there's two important points there one is don't reverse cause and effect right mm-hmm. which is like yeah maybe a goal i, I would argue you shouldn't prescribe a goal to be an entrepreneur to a kid. If that's what they end up doing, that's what they end up doing. Mm -hmm. But like, okay. If, if as a child, your goal is to be an entrepreneur, you're not going to get there by mimicking what entrepreneurs look like they're doing. Right. Yes. Um, By dressing the way entrepreneurs dress, by working in an environment that looks like um, a startup environment, by drinking a a venti coffee. Um, Those things are not going to produce the results you think. So I think it's one a choosing the right goals and figuring out what steps are necessary to get to that goal. And then also, um, uh, you know, making sure your goal is actually correct and not, not trying to just pretend to be an entrepreneur. So Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. I think, I don't know, what, what are your big takeaways from this? I've got a few that I'll kind of wrap us up with, but what, what are there any big takeaways you have that you hope people will be left with from this discussion? Yeah, I think the I think the two that stick out to me are that are that character element of okay, the, the, what really makes for a good teacher in a good teaching environment is a teacher with a good character, a good ethos. That's what kids are going to respect. And then secondly, what we've been arriving at here, which is I think another way to say it is think about what's essential about what you want to achieve. So for example, in being an entrepreneur, what's essential is working hard, dealing with hardship, thinking creatively, being collaborative. What's essential about being an entrepreneur is not Starbucks, (laughs) you know? So I think there's some sort of, there's something to be, something to be said there about, okay, if you're sitting down to formulate your teaching goals, think what is essential about my vision. Definitely. Um, yeah, I think those are my big takeaways too. And um, maybe to summarize a few of them, like I think what we've done today is we've discussed uh, two main things, which is how to navigate caricatures and romanticized visions of things and hopefully providing some tips and a discussion for how to navigate those. I think mainly like talking to people, right? Actually getting to know somebody that's had an experience so you can um, – you know, tear down the idol a little bit that you've created in Mm -hmm. your head. So actually talking to people is tip number one. Number two is like trying to avoid packaging things together. So rather than just lumping anything that's been related, try and ask like what is essential about it? Because I think we might be able to say like, it's not that caricatures are always completely invalid. There might be an experience that has led to that, but maybe what just needs to happen is drawing the right conclusion. So to your point, oh, those teachers that inform that caricature of the strict nun, it was just actually that one person, not, mm-hmm. and what actually matters to your point is the caricature of the, or the character of the teacher um, is what actually mm-hmm. matters. So let's focus on that. So unpackaging things together and then having just clear goals so that you can, you can um, figure out what you actually care about rather than focusing on which team you're going to align yourself to or which team Mm -hmm. feels better, ask yourself what is actually the most important thing. And then what is to your point essential about that? Um, 
So I think that's the main main thing. And then I thought we had a really interesting review of a particular kind of caricature, which is teaching methods, right? One idealized, romanticized view of the progressives versus maybe the more strict one. And then I love your point about navigating that nuance and saying, well, actually, what matters most is the character. If you can get somebody that's a great role model, uh, a great um, uh you know, person that the kids want to aspire to emulate, that's going to go a long way. You're going to get their buy-in for rigorous instruction. So yeah, that's kind of my takeaways and summary is like, I learned a little bit about how to navigate these sorts of conversations actually, and, and actually get to practice it a little bit by looking at your experiences with, with the, the caricature I had created. Well, right. thank you, Emily. And we'll do this again next week. Thank you.